Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. All right, without further ado, here's Senior Pastor Dan Willis. Thank you, Katie. Good morning, Free Life. How are you? Great. Well, this side's doing pretty good. This side, I'm not so sure. And somewhere in the middle, you guys are kind of mixed. But uh, what a glorious day it is today um, for so many things. And I, I don't know why today seems better than others, other than maybe the, the Lord has filled me more today. Um, and, you know, that's directly relevant to how surrendered to him you are. He will fill you when you're surrendered. Have you noticed that? So I'm grateful for you to be here today. Welcome to those of you online and to our Mecca campus. Hope things are going well up there for you. Uh, and may God bless all of us today. Amen. You might have noticed in this sermon series, uh, Living a Godly Life in an Ungodly Society. Uh, we, we are transitioning from our hard reset that you see bef- behind me. And we're moving in, um, starting uh, probably... Uh, either right before Christmas or right after, uh, into our new theme, which is all in. And the reason is because God had to get our attention and reset us uh, back to the beginnings of our spirituality. Because spirituality in our nation and in the modern church today, in my observation, and according to the Word of God, is, was going to happen, uh, that we have kind of made up our own brand of Christianity as we move along. And, and God says, no, what you're trying to make it isn't what I've determined it is. And so we've kind of gotten off path, and the Christianity we've been living, I think, isn't really what God says it is. And if it isn't, then it won't save us. And that's a problem. That means there are people out there who are church-affiliated and Christian-affiliated, but they're not all in. And because they aren't, they're not saved. They look like Christians sometimes. They even act like it sometimes. But God's the one that determines whether they are or not. That's, that's scary when we're trying to determine it. Because ultimately, what will we do? Make it what we want it to be. And that's just not going to get it done, is it? And so that's why we had to have the hard reset. And now that we've been reset and we realize now we're all in. Uh, I'm reminded as I do this, uh, or bring this sermon this morning, I've entitled it Giving Yourself to God, and it comes from Romans 12. We're going to go there in a minute. Uh, but before we do, I want you to think about this. Yes, you know I'm a movie buff. I know some of you aren't real movie lovers. That's okay. Uh, we found out, you know, many years ago, you're not going to go to hell if you watch movies. Uh, but, I, but I do think, I do think, friends, and hear me carefully, that we have to be careful about what we intake. 
Now, that doesn't mean that I'm going to flip out every time I hear a swear word or I'm going to flip out if I see inappropriate things on television or whatever, okay? Because I'm uncomfortable with it because I know who my servant, why, and he lives in me, yeah? So because he does, I can live in this world but not be of it. I can see those things, and they don't affect me and influence me unless I desire them. Does that make sense? So there are certain, I, I believe you can watch certain movies, and there are certain clips you can just fast forward through they're not necessary. But one of my favorites, and some of you are going to laugh, is Happy Gilmore. <laughs> and, and I'm reminded about, it's, it's kind of silly, and there's some inappropriate moments in it, but there's a message there. And, and one of my favorites, I think, goes along beautifully with what I'm going to bring today. You might remember that Happy Gilmore, well, first of all, I'll be honest, who's watched it? Okay, more than that has watched it. Okay, now you may not remember it, but let me uh, bring, a little, bring it back to the present on it. Uh, Happy is a hockey player. He becomes a golfer because he can drive the ball a long way. All of us, don't we, John, wish we could drive the ball as far as Happy did in that movie. 400 yards is quite a shot, <laughs> I think. I, I don't play golf, but I, I tried to play, but I was a softball player, and I didn't roll my arms properly. I never got that swing down, and my balls all go like this. John knows what I'm talking about. Any golfers in here? Frank, your golfer, other golfers, it, it go, it's called a slice. Uh, I was uh, playing an Elbel golf course in South Bend one time with some friends, uh, and our fairway went this way, and there was like a grove of trees, and another fairway going this way. And it was stunning because when I shot, you know, it went over the grove of trees and onto the other fairway. It wasn't supposed to be there. <laughs> and so I said, can I get a drop here? They're like, no. <laughs> no, can't get a drop. And anyway, so, you know, golf is, a, is an art, I think. And some are good at it, some aren't. And, and Happy becomes a golfer because he's got the long ball, but he doesn't have the other aspects of the game. And so he gets frustrated when he doesn't do well with his short game and things like that. Okay? And so he, he starts playing on the Pro Tour, and then he, starts, uh, uh, he plays in a celebrity tournament, and he gets paired up with Bob Barker. You guys remember that? Yeah. And so he and Bob Barker get in this altercation. He, go, he goes, you're going to get it, Bobby. You're going to get it, Bobby. Now, I don't know who's going to talk to Bob Barker like that, but he did. And he says, do you want a piece of me, Bobby? Do you want a piece of me? And, and Bob says, no, Happy, I want the whole thing. <laughs> I think sometimes we approach the throne of God and we say, God, we do it differently, but we say, do you want a piece of me? Because that's all I'm willing to offer. And God's like, no, I want the whole thing. Because if you don't give your all to me, then you can have no part of me. You see? He told Peter the same thing, different circumstance, same idea. And so we have to get this idea in our minds that it's, it's a full thing. It's all in. It's a hard reset to being all in, and now we offer all that we are to God because we're not doing that. I, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. It doesn't take brilliance to see. The, the church is not giving its all to God. We're just not. I know we're not. You know we're not. We don't even have to have an argument about it. It's obvious. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 12, two verses. Now, Chip Ingram uh, does an entire uh, series on this called R12. Uh, we've done it here before. It's absolutely tremendous. And I was just looking at it again the other day. But, well, the other day, it was three weeks ago for me because I was when I was preparing the rest of this. Uh, and and it's, even though it's an older series, it's completely relevant still. And Pastor Chris, that might be something we might want to take a look at again. 
it, it is fantastic. Um, and, and if you look at what it's based on, it's this right here. And listen to what Paul says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not, he says, this is do not, this, that means don't, right? Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And friends, I want, it, that's a short passage, but I want you to understand the depth of that. And I've, I've brought messages and Bible studies on this many times over 30 years of ministry. But I want to bring it in a different way today, something that you grasp. And if you look at what he's saying here, don't conform to the pattern of this world. It's hard not to do that. It is really difficult today because the enemy is good about mixing and blurring the lines. Because the world says that we're supposed to compromise. Compromise, compromise, compromise. And when you compromise, you're conforming. I think that we have to have a spirit of compromise on some things. But not when it relates to the kingdom of God. Not when it relates to what's Christian and what's not. Not when it relates to what God says and he doesn't. Not what's commanded, what's right and wrong. Those are things we cannot conform. We cannot compromise. We have to see it for what it is. And you know, for years and years and years, the enemy has taken the word of God and used it against us. He's the one that's gotten people to believe that they can relax their commitment to God by relaxing their desire to think and believe in the manner that God does. And when you do that, friends, here's what happens. You start saying things like, love and grace and mercy are the most important and only attributes of Christianity. So wrong. I'm grateful for all three, trust me. But look what Paul says, be transformed not by grace, love, and mercy, but by the renewing of your mind. We've been taught and we've been teaching that it isn't in the mind. It's not knowledge, but it's mercy and love from grace. Oh, no, no, no. They're all together. Christ said, love others as I have loved you. He didn't say, conform to the world because you're showing mercy to him. He didn't say that. He never said compromise. He didn't. And somehow, because he treated people well, and because he showed love and grace and mercy to people, we think that that meant he agreed with the world and let them be sinful and do whatever they want? Never. In fact, Christ condemned sin. He even told the adulterous woman, go and stop sinning <laughs> today, right now, this moment. He didn't say, bless your heart, I know you don't have any choice, keep doing it, but when you, when you can, try to stop. That's not what he said. Now, did he? Okay, so you understand where this is coming from. Now, in 1965, 
The American writer Irma Bombeck wrote in her book, At Wit's End, and maybe you've seen it or heard of it, I suspect. She died um, uh, in, in, in the 90s, uh, but uh, she had some incredible things to say. She, was, uh, she wrote this book, At Wit's End, um, based on her life as a mother in the 50s. And, uh, and it's pretty funny, some things that she says, but this is what she says. She says, when I stand before God at the end of my life, I would hope that I would not have a single bit of talent left and I could say, Lord, I used everything that you gave me. She was making light of what it meant to be a mother in the 50s, uh, and she realized that it was a pretty difficult thing to do. And she made a comic out of it. But at the end, she said, I hope and pray that I've done everything right and I've used every talent you've given me. Every one of us in here is going to make mistakes. I can tell you this, I would be a better parent today than I was when I was a parent. And I'd probably have less brain cells if I did it again, but you know what I mean. I would have no, uh, at wit's end, I'd be at the end of it, my wits. I, I can take my grandkids, I, I enjoy having them, uh, but there is a time when I'm glad they go home. Okay? Some more than others. Uh, yeah. But uh, in the end, you know, it's true that if you could have become a grandparent before a parent, you'd have done it. Um, but I understand, you know. And I look back and I think, maybe I wasn't the best father I could have been. But at the time, I did the best that I thought was right at that time. And sure, I'd go back and change it. We all would. But the one thing I don't want to have to say is, spiritually, I could have been better. That's worse. I want to know that I left it all, you know? I laid it all on the line and did everything I could in the kingdom of God. And that's exactly the point that Paul makes in these two verses. He's talking about using everything that God gave him, giving his whole person, everything he's got, all of it to God, every bit of it. You see, we understand this idea of giving an offering of money at the church. We just passed the plate here a few minutes ago. Now, we got away from that for quite a while because of COVID, but now we know that probably that's not what's going to you know, spread it. It's more airborne. Either way, uh, I'm still not going to stop sanitizing. <laughs> you know. uh, but, I, but I'll tell you this. I, I, we get this idea of putting money in the plate and passing it, you know, or, you know, maybe, you know, you put your cash, your check in envelope, you drop in the plate, or maybe you gave online, whatever. Sermon for another day, but you, you need to be giving. You know that, right? Not because we need the money, but because God demands it. And I believe this. Every church, relevant to the size, if every person in the church tied the way God says you should, the church would never want for cash. We would never worry about survival. So just two for thought, sermon for another day. Either way. So, but anyway, we put our check in the plate or whatever, uh, but most of us need some help, you know, with this idea of offering ourselves to God. We're willing to give to God, maybe, but we're not necessarily willing to give ourselves to God. You got, I want you to think about that for a minute. Why? Because we can't put ourselves in an envelope and drop ourselves in the plate. We can't climb into the plate when the usher says, uh, my offering today is to God is myself. You know, when, the, when the ushers come by, you, you can't do it. It's not possible to crawl on the plate. So we give a portion of what God has given us back to him. Notice I said a portion. 
But God isn't asking for you to be a tithe today. He wants you to tithe, but he wants you to be an offering. Big difference. And I think some people equate them as the same. Well, if I go to church and I put a little money in the plate, then that's all God requires of me. Oh, I don't think so. And clearly here, it is not. So get that out of your head right now, because that's not going to fly when you meet him. I'll tell you the truth, it's not flying now. And you know it isn't. But unfortunately, we can convince ourselves of anything when we want it bad enough, you see. People that want to believe things don't want to hear any other influences because they've decided this is what I'm going to believe. But the problem is, what, what if God says no? That's, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. So my offering to God as myself is difficult because giving yourself to Christ is hard to do, and yet it shouldn't be in relation to what he's done for you. Right? I mean, he gave everything he had. He gave his life. You would think that it is true that we should all be able to say, you know, I'm going to serve the Lord with all my being because he gave everything to me. Because you gave your life for me, I will live for you. Man, it's not that hard to get. You know why we don't? Because we don't want to. We want to reserve at least a portion for ourselves. And for some of us, it's a lot more than a portion. And God's getting the scraps sometimes, or sometimes nothing at all. I know for a fact in any church around the globe that there will be some weeks that there are people in that church that gave nothing to God at all because they were so busy doing other things. No, not that they're bad things or that you shouldn't do them. But when God gets none of your time, none of your focus, none of your attention, is he happy with that? Well, you know the answer to that. So why does he get what's left instead of what's first, as he demands? Hey, I know there's not enough of you to go around. Lord knows there's not enough of me to go around. And some days and some weeks are worse than others, amen? But I cannot forget to start with him. Because before you know it, the weeks or the day is at an end, and you didn't give him anything. And it shouldn't be out of obligation either. It can't be out of obligation. Let me put it this way. How many of you today are willing for me to tell Matt to pull the plates out and double your offering? See, you hear, I hear some hmms out there. Probably not very many. Probably not very many. And yet, it would be easier, I think, for some of us to double our offering and put it in a plate than it would be to give all of ourselves to Christ. It's almost like, well, I can't, I can't or don't have the time to give my, all of myself, so I'll just give a double offering today. I honestly think we would, we would do that. You know why? Because we all think of it. We think it's, we think it's a fair trade-off. God's God not looking for a trade-off. That doesn't appease him, even in the least. Because if you give all of yourself to God and you keep it all of yourself to God, then you won't have any trouble putting the right amount in the plate or online when the time comes. And I can tell you this, I've spoken to two different guys in this church over the last week or so, and both of them, out of the blue, brought up and said, you know, it was a struggle to start tithing, but when I did, everything else was always better. Never, never worried about cash after we started giving. Well, you know what, friends? 
It's, it's hard to force yourself to do it, though. It's hard to make that commitment to do it because all you can do is look at the dollars and cents, what you have and what you don't. But see, you can't outgive God. That's, that's the whole idea here. Still, God says that true spiritual worship is giving ourselves to Him and doing it continually, and that's what we have to do. And by the way, living godly in an ungodly world is going to require it. It's going to require it. So we've got some work to do in our giving, don't you think? And I'm not talking about in the plate. That too, probably. But you know what I mean. So let's look at it. First, the question is, why do we give our all to God? What, why is that so important? What, what's the big deal about giving yourself to God? Well, Paul presents a, a convincing argument. He says that God's mercies um, are the reason that he argues of giving ourselves to God. In fact, Paul tells us in verse 1 that in the light of the, all the mercy God has offered us, we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice back to God. In fact, uh, the great author W.E. Vine says in his whole Bible commentary that mercy is the outward manifest, manifestation of pity. It assumes need on the part of him who receives it and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. Now, that, I know that we don't speak like that anymore. Uh, but basically, mercy is you recognize the need in someone else and it's directly attributable to you and your ability to meet the need of mercy. Giving to someone where they have need for survival of something. Not a want, but of survival. In other words, mercy is identifying with someone's misery. And that's exactly what God did for you and me. Do you know that there are miserable people and they don't know they're miserable? You know anybody that's miserable and they don't know it? Have you ever looked at that person and they, they, they think that's just the way life is and you look at it and say, but that's not the way life ought to be. And so you go tell someone else, or you think to yourself, well, that's a miserable person right there. And they don't even know that they're miserable. Sometimes it's you. Has anybody ever told you, hey, what's wrong with you? Or ask you what's wrong with you, and you say nothing. They're like, well, now something's wrong. You're acting miserable, and you don't even know it. Or you justify it. We're good at that, too. And I, and, I, and I think about that a little bit, and I'm like, wow. God's heart went out to us in our hopeless condition. And a lot of us didn't even know we were hopeless. You know? We didn't even know it. And he responded to our pain. In fact, God did more than we typically would. God did more for us than we typically would. And I'm not talking about seeking out the person down, you know, down at Walmart or here at I-70 who's got the sign that says I'm homeless. I know as a deputy sheriff that a, a good majority of them really aren't. Now, you're going to get upset with me for saying it, but I'm telling you, investigations on these people have been done, and most of them aren't. I'm not saying that... There aren't some out there that are doing it. I, I, I get it. And I think God will tell you when to help somebody. Amen? And you got to listen to him, though. you got to listen to God. You can't listen to yourself because that's what you typically will do. Okay? So, but the sermon isn't about that. I'm simply saying that God did more for us than we typically will for one another. That's truth. Okay? In fact... God did more than just say, well, you know, I'm sorry, that's too bad. I'll pray for you. <laughs> We're good at doing that for people, aren't we? You know? 
God actually acted upon it. He dealt with the problem and provided a solution. And that alone ought to be enough uh, for us to give ourselves over to Him in our entirety. Everything. But we have to look at it more closely. In fact, we have to recognize, basically, who God is. I don't, I don't know that we actually recognize God for who He is. Because for, even when we're little kids, we will get an idea of who God is from the people who are raising us. And then we'll start to be influenced by who God is based on how we live, where we live, and the society that's around us. And then sooner or later, eventually, and it begins pretty early, we begin to form our own opinions of who God is. And by golly, when we formed our opinion, we're right. Aren't we? And then God shows up sooner or later. You know, He's been there the whole time, but we don't necessarily turn to him because life hasn't gotten bad enough or we think we need him. And then when he does show up and, we're, and we recognize this God who showed up, now we get a very different idea who God is. Sometimes we won't believe it. Sometimes we want to use God for what we think he can give us to get us out of this jam we're in. And then we're done with him, see? Or maybe it's more permanent. Maybe it's a back and forth kind of thing. But it, it's manifested in many different ways. But we have to recognize not who God is, the society or we ourselves have determined that He is, but who God says He is. And I'll tell you this, our ladies did a Bible study uh, a few years ago, and they'll never forget it. God is, yeah, God is who He says He is, isn't He? When we recognize that God is who He says He is, and that God has done for us what He has done through Christ His Son, the only response is to worship Him completely. That's the only one He's going to accept. The fact is, we're sinners, and our sin has absolutely dire and deathly consequences. There's no way around it. You can, you can wish it away, think it away, believe something different all you want, but in the end, it's not going to matter. Because what God says is what it is, period. And he says everybody is a sinner. Yes, even the infant just born a second ago is a sinner. But they haven't done anything. They're human. And sin passed into humanity with Adam and Eve's sin, yes or no? So we're all sinners. And every one of us has to be saved, period. And we all got to determine that. But yet, while we were sinners, what did Christ do? He died for us. He took our place, took upon himself the consequences, the punishment of our sin. And now there's no condemnation upon us because of that. Oh, Satan will point a finger at you and tell you that there is, make you feel guilty for it. And that you're not good enough or don't measure up, whatever, all the things he says. But God says, no, no, I died for that. Now, you may not be measuring up to it because you've decided not to, but the ability is within you and the desire will get you there. Be like me in every regard, but you have to want it. Every ball team I've ever coached, every wrestler I've ever coached, I'm telling you this. You can tell the difference. There's the ones that want to hang medals and plaques and championships on their wall, but there's very few that want it in here. Everybody wants the end result, but not very many people show me how much they want it. Am I right, coach? Hey, 
you can't coach heart. <laughs> Either you have it or you don't. How badly do you want it? Every student I ever knew wanted to hang a degree on their wall to say they did it. But not very many of them are willing to put in the work. I remember my son Jeff told my wife one time, because she asked him, how are your grades when he was down at USI in Evansville? Oh, how, how are your grades, Jeff? Oh, yeah, 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 they're, they're there. No, 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 son, I didn't ask you that. And I thought, oh, this is going to be good. I stood back and watched. <laughs> and I thought, you're, you're, you're really going to get into a, a chat with your, with your stepmom, and she's gonna, you're, you're going to get out of it, you think. No, I don't think so. And so she said, no, no, son. And she said, by the way, I'll tell you what. I think you need some new shoes, don't you? He said, well, you know, I, I these new. Well, let's, let's, let's crawl in the, in the car and go get some new shoes. And so Jeff crawled in the car. Went, he thought, you know, this is just going to be a nice ride with mom, and we're going to get new shoes. And, and mom says, how are your grades again? <laughs> and then it came out that he had a strong C-plus average. We told her. And she said, Jeff, you're smarter than that. You can do better than that. And she thought he would say, you know, I know. And I'll try to do better. But he didn't. You know what he said? Well, last I looked, C's graduate like A's. Should have never said that. Even if you thought it, you don't tell, your, you don't tell her that. It, but I told him, you know, I said, you're lucky you didn't tell me that. The fact of the matter is, we had this mentality. Right? God doesn't want your strong C-plus average, right? You know what God wants from you. Every one of you knows what God wants from you. If, if it isn't fair for you to hang a certificate on the wall that says you graduated from such and such college and you barely got by and you're a medical doctor or whatever, do you want the person that barely got by or do you want the one that excelled? You tell, you tell me. If it isn't fair to hang it up there if you never did it, or if it isn't fair to hang it up there if you really didn't do very well in it. How do we think we can call ourselves Christians and we're not doing very well in it? You understand? Big, it, there's, there's this big controversy within about it. Grace and mercy is an act of this ultimate gift. We are saved from the fires of hell to the internal presence of God. And it should be enough motivation for us to worship God continually. He's not asking that much from us. If reflecting on God's mercies doesn't move us, my friends, I'm not real sure what will. And I'll tell you what, we're in trouble. I mean, I look back at what God did for me and like, wow, He took my place. I can never outgive that. I can never do enough to repay that. But all He asks is what I can give. That's all He asks. But he doesn't let you determine what you can give. He determines it. You see the difference? We think, yeah, I'll give what I can, but you determine it. No. God says, you have to let me do it. I mean, where would we be without God's love and forgiveness? I know where I'd be. You know where, anybody here know where you'd be? Okay? See, that's the thing. And this is why we should want to give ourselves to God. But Paul says, Paul says we're to worship God as well. And so I begin to think about it. What does worship actually look like? I mean, what, what is it? Now, we've talked about this before, but true worship, according to Paul, is a living sacrifice. He continues by saying that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, this expression, living sacrifice, gets its origin from the Old Testament uh, practice of uh, bringing your animals to the altar and sacrificing them on the altar. 
And so in the New Testament, we can't do that anymore, so we're to offer ourselves as the sacrifice. And so when Paul uses this term of body, he was implying the whole person, the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual means of the person. The entire person. And this presentation is incredibly similar to the practice of surrender. Years and years ago, when uh, a general or an army commander would lose a battle or a war, they would offer the sword to the opposing and victorious commander. And in doing so, it's a signification that I've lost, you've won, the war is over, and I present my sword to you as acknowledgement that you're the victor. But it's way more than that. Because as soon as you do that, the person who you're presenting the sword to now becomes the perfecter of what goes on in your life. You didn't just acknowledge you lost the war. You now know, have said, my life, what becomes of me, and the lives of all of my soldiers is in your hands. Some of them would just let them go home. Say, you're done fighting. War's over. We've won. Go home. You're not a soldier anymore. That's exactly what happened in the Civil War. General Grant said, turn them loose. Go home, boys. Some of them put them in prison. Some of them turn them into slaves and make them work for the rest of their lives. And some of them execute them. See, friends, we have to understand that when we become a Christian and we present ourselves as living sacrifice, we're giving our sword, our means to take care of ourselves and to fight for our cause is over. We're giving it to God and He will determine what goes on with us. And the beauty of it is, God doesn't put you to death. He doesn't execute you. He doesn't make you a slave. You desire to be what He wants you to be. And He just wants to build you up and make you a force in His kingdom. Not very many times does the commander say, okay, all you soldiers come and fight for me. But God does. God accepts us as his. It's pretty stunning. But the surrender was total. And it must be with us as well. And, I, and I'll tell you, there's something else we've got to notice. The term living sacrifice to me is an oxymoron. Have you ever thought about that? I, I need you to use your, your uh, thinking brains today, not just your spiritual ones. Okay? I want you to think about this for a minute. Uh, it's an oxymoron, living sacrifice. It's two opposite words together that don't typically go together, much like same difference. We say it all the time, though. Get this one. Pretty ugly. Head, butt. <laughs> Polar opposites. Get this one. Here's my personal favorite. Jumbo shrimp. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a few more out there that I didn't think of. But living sacrifice are two words that just don't make sense when put together. Not really. They are contradictory. Living means just that, and sacrifice by its very nature means that if it's not dead yet, it soon will be. 
you see. Sacrifice almost always means gone, here no more. But in Christ, a living sacrifice says, no one or nothing, not even myself, is more important than my relationship with God and His kingdom work. Nothing is more important. I want my whole life, my body, my mind, my spirit to be sacrificed for Christ Jesus. I want Him to have the whole of it. So when Bob Barker and Happy Gilmer got together, when Bob said he wanted the whole thing, uh, Happy should have said, well, you can have it. But all he was offering is a portion, a piece. That's what we do. God says he wants the whole thing, and you're like, okay, it's yours. No more altercation, no more fight, no more conflict. It's yours. God doesn't want to have to fight for the pieces you're willing to give. We're taught in this life to scrap for every single thing we get. In football, we scrap for every yard, every inch. Every yard that we get is closer to a score. Field position is massive. I washed it all day yesterday. Back and forth, back and forth, all these teams went trying to gain field position. And I noticed that the way they played the game when they're deep in their own side of the field is very different than when they're knocking at the door at the end zone. More confidence, more up-tempo play, more investment. It's almost like they're in, in, you know, safety mode back here, but they're in aggressive mode up here. Where are we? Every inch closer that you get to heaven, friends, whether it's in life or in your spirit, is better than you were before. And we should be seeking it, scraping for it, going after it, desiring it. And I began to think about that, and I thought, I just want my whole life to honor Him. And if there's anything in my life that rivals or threatens my relationship with Him, I'm going to give it up. I don't know how many people are willing to cold turkey, give things up, that they enjoy to do or like being part of, that they know is taking away. And sometimes it's good things, but they're zapping you in your energy and your time. There are two real examples I can think of recorded as living sacrifices in the Bible, and these two give us a clue as to what it means. The first is Abraham and Isaac, really. Abraham obediently placed his son Isaac on the altar, and Isaac would have died in obedience to God's will. But the Lord sent a ram to take Isaac's place, and that's a good thing, because when Isaac got up off the altar, still alive, now he became the living sacrifice. The ram took his place in death, but now he was supposed to give his life over to God. That was the contrast that we see. Completely surrendered in every way. And the second one is Christ. He was the perfect living sacrifice because he actually died as our sacrifice in obedience to God's will. Now, didn't he? And in doing so, he became our spiritual servant. And Christ explained it this way in Matthew 20, uh, 28. Just as a son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, in his death, he served the Father by serving as our sacrifice. Now, maybe you've never thought of it that way before, and you might want to write that down. I don't know that anybody's ever explained it that way to me before. But basically, Jesus 
serve the Father by serving us as our sacrifice. And this is exactly how and why we're to serve the Lord by being completely surrendered, just as Isaac was, in order to fulfill our obligation to the Father in thanks for being saved from eternal death. This is what living sacrifice means. Jesus took your place in death, but you are to live for Him completely. So, let's talk about worship. So when do we worship, by the way? When do we? It's stunning to me because when I've asked people, when do you worship? You'll be surprised at the answers you get. It'll blow your mind. It doesn't mind anymore because I'm used to it. Now, it surprises me of some people what they'll say because I expected it to be different. But across the board, it's not different for the, the answers I get. For most of us, worship is Sunday morning. You agree with me? Even if you grudgingly have to do it? Probably for most of us, it's Sunday morning, but that isn't what Paul says. Paul says that true worship is surrender. Unfortunately, we think of worship as an hour or so on Sunday, maybe an hour and a half, whatever it is. For some, it's all day. You know that, right? Yeah. So don't complain about my hour-long sermons anymore. Because <laughs> for some, it's all day. Now, if you... You want, uh, if you want to go to an Amish church, be my guest. But you won't stay very long. And there's others. So to me, as long as you're getting something out of it, what difference does it make how long it is? It's the Lord's Day anyway. It doesn't belong to you. It never has belonged to you. But for some reason, we think we get to determine, just like the rest of our lives. We determine how much of the Lord's Day we're going to give Him when it's His already. And we determine how much of our life we're going to give Him when it's His already. If you belong to Him, it does. Amen? God only asks for one day from you out of the week. The other six, do what you want. But He still wants your worship every day. And so that's why I tell people, it isn't just Sunday morning. God thinks it's 24 hours a day every day. It comes in different forms and packages. You see, true worship is a lifestyle. Making a living sacrifice is a habit. It's a godly and spiritual lifestyle. Baptist author and commentator Warren Wiersbe, and many of you might have done a Bible study from him before. Uh, He's brilliant. Some, I don't agree with everything he says because the theology is a little you know, wonky for me. But the truth of the things he says are there. And he says, get this, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it keeps crawling off the altar. I think that's, wow, that's an aha moment right there, right? I'm a living sacrifice, but I keep crawling off the altar, right? Friends, if we're honest, we admit that we often do it. And let me put it this way. We may sing onward Christian soldiers on Sunday and then go AWOL on Monday. Anybody? Yeah. You see, we have to give ourselves to God each day, and we have to do it always because that's what it means. I mean, making a living sacrifice is never just this one-time event. Jesus, in fact, instructed us to take up our cross daily. And there's this moment of sacrifice, and there's this moment-by-moment sacrifice, and there's the practice of sacrifice. And the fact is, we have to do all three. You have to practice sacrifice all the time. 
And God may have a moment of sacrifice for you in your life, or you ha- might have one that's moment by moment. It's one after the other. You have, to, you have to be willing to do all three because that's what this is all about. Because to keep crawling off the altar, you have to make it a daily habit to offer yourself to God all three ways. So basically, worship is truly offering ourselves to God. It's got nothing to do with how many songs we sing on here. But unfortunately, that's how we put it. People will say they go to churches for two reasons. One is the quality of messages that they get. And the second is for the worship. What is that exactly? Because we've equated it with the band or the song or the music or the feeling of it. No! Boston said, I'm trying to get the feeling. You, 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 don't have to, you can't create that feeling. It's either in you or it isn't. And when you sell out and surrender to God, the feeling's always going to be there. Because He lives in you. How could you not? Wow. Like I said, offering ourselves to God is not something we should consider to be contained within an hour, an hour and a half of worship in a service. A living sacrifice is a sacrifice that's alive and it's continuous in action. Giving our all, our everything, means getting away from saying we're committed, surrendered, and sacrificing to actually doing it. Every single minute of every single day and then making a commitment to remember to do it the next day and the day after that. We're saying and meaning one thing. And to me that is, God, I know what you did for me. And it obligates me to be in your service every single time I take a breath. But more than that, I appreciate what you did, Lord. And I want to do it. So here I am. Okay. So now that we know what worship is supposed to be, how do we do it? Well, first of all, get this. God's asking you to be a nonconformist. Not to him, but to the world that you live in. See, we're taught our whole lives that we're not supposed to be a nonconformist. It's looked down upon. But friends, when what you're being required to conform to is wrong, you should be a nonconformist. Make sense? You got to be a nonconformist. Paul says, do not be conformed to this age, to this life, to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect in the will of God. You see, when we give ourselves to God, it's reflected in how we think. Believers live in an ungodly world without being trapped in it. And this is huge. You've you got to get this. We, we're not trapped in the world. We're not influenced by it. We're not molded by it. In other words, we don't do what others do simply because we live here. We don't allow the ways, the thoughts, the beliefs, the feelings and the practices of society to influence our thoughts, our beliefs, or our practices. We don't allow ourselves to conform to societal anything. We live as godly people in this ungodly society. We think, believe, feel, and practice what God says is right and honorable. 
not what everybody else does. In essence, basically, we become people who are distinct and according to the Bible, peculiar. That word is actually used. And I, I, I got news for you. The way our society is going now, if you don't feel peculiar in it, there's something right in here that isn't godly. There's something that's not right. Can't be. Because I look out here and I'm thinking, man, and I feel pretty peculiar. And yet that's what God wants me to be. Because we're separated from the ways and the beliefs of this world. We live as nonconformist people, people who are not chameleons, people who don't become like our surroundings. We live as transformed people, people who have been changed on the inside and it permeates to the outside. You see? We've morphed from one person into another because if you don't, you're not saved. You morph from the unsaved to the saved. You morph from the ungodly to the godly. You morph. from the finite to the eternal. Hmm. We're to live as radical people in the kingdom of God, not reasonable people in an ungodly society. Let me explain that to you. If we're reasonable toward society, which is what they want us to be, then we're hostile toward God just as they are. Do you understand that? But there's more. I also noticed that people who worship continually are changed people. When you worship continually, you're a changed person. It's reflected in, in your walk, your talk, your personality. And when you give yourselves to God, you're not self-centered, but you're Christ-centered. Big difference. The world wants to pressure our minds from the outside, but a godly person allows God's Spirit to release His power from within them so that the pressure from the outside doesn't gain control over you. That's what the origin is. It's on the inside. It's controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because what Paul was talking about is this authority and this armor, this spiritual armor. He describes it as an outward shield, but it comes from the inside. You understand? It's the only one that I can think of that does that. And I have to tell you, every traffic stop I ever made, every arrest I ever made, every building I ever went into as a law enforcement officer, I was grateful for the bullet-resistant vest that I had on. They're not bulletproof, no such thing. They're bullet-resistant. But I knew that that thing might not save me if I got hit in the shoulders or in the stomach or in the neck, or the head. And I also knew, even if it hit me square on, it might not save me. And so, you know what my shield was? Right there. Because I can only do so much on the outside. Same as you. Same as you. That's why you have to live this way. People who worship are changed people. 
And we worship continually one way, by walking to the altar. Stay with me here. This is powerful. Changed people, people who worship continually, walk to the altar. You see, when the priests brought the animals to the altar, these animals were either carried, led, or more likely dragged to the place of sacrifice. Why? Because none of them wanted to go. And some of them knew what was coming. I assure you, every human that was done to knew. And none of them wanted to go. But that isn't how it works with a living sacrifice. Nobody's going to hogtie you and drag you to the altar. It's not going to happen. Not in this church anyway. In fact, those who worship continually go on their own. They go willingly. And even more than that, they desire to go. They want to go. And that's what makes a living sacrifice so special because a living sacrifice is never forced. It's not coerced. It's not dragged. It wants to go. It seeks to go. It desires to go. And for that to happen, friends, you've got to make the effort. Walking to the altar always takes some effort. I, I, I've had times where we've given an, offer call, an altar call either, either here or another church. I've done revival or at Emmaus or whatever. And, and it kind of depends. Some people are chomping at the bit. They're leaning in the seat. They know that's going to come, and they want to go. They're desirous of getting there because they've got some things to deal with. I had one uh, Emmaus walk. I'll never forget, for those of you who know what that means. Uh, I don't know if, who was in it. I'm not sure which one it was. It was a men's walk. I've worked both. But these guys were literally killing themselves trying to get there. They were, they were crawling over each other to get there. That's, that's, that's a powerful effect the Spirit has on you. It was not, had nothing to do with what I said. It was just that that was the message for them at that moment, and God got a hold of their hearts. And en masse, these guys were, they, they, they couldn't get there fast enough. I've been in some where you knew there were people that needed to go. You could see the conviction on them. They were wiggling all over the place, but they just wouldn't do it. Would not do it. You see, it takes effort. Being a living sacrifice is kingdom living. We've got to want this kind of life. You have to desire it, knowing it's not going to be easy. The human tendency is always to take the easy path, to take, to, to take it safe, to make it safe, to live it safe, play it safe, to avoid pain and hurt, to avoid effort and exertion, but wanting the results of hard work and sacrifice that you didn't earn or deserve. Because we live in a society that says, I deserve it, I deserve it, I deserve it. No, you don't. No, you don't. And the only time that I can see where you deserve it is when you say yes to Christ and want a life like that, now you deserve it. But you don't otherwise. We tell people in Emmaus, you deserve it. You know why? Because they've already, because Emmaus people have already turned their lives over to Christ. They're already saved. And all they deserve now is a better life in Christ, a deeper one. Isn't that true, Emmaus guys? Isn't it? Great banquet, same thing? Yeah. That's what it, you deserve it. But we think we deserve something for nothing. We're taught that.
God's kingdom doesn't work that way, but then again, nothing worth having ever does. We're to offer our bodies. A person who is a living sacrifice lays their physical bodies on the altar. Now, the word offer means to present it. You're presenting yourself. It's the technical expression for submitting a victim or whatever it is for sacrifice. The word sacrifice clearly shows the expectation of believers to hand over their bodies to God in a manner resembling the way the people of Israel presented their offerings to the Lord. And the word bodies means our physical selves. But why would God want our bodies? Why doesn't God just say, offer your spirit? And maybe that's a question you've always had and never got answered. Well, because without our bodies, we can't do anything on this planet. If God's got our body, then He's got us. Because wherever our body goes, we're sure to follow. <laughs> God doesn't just want our job, money, and stuff. He wants all of it, including our bodies. And secondly, the body is given to us to make the visible beauty of Christ come forward. Since we're created in God's image, and Christ was the manifestation of that. So are we. So are we. God doesn't want models for television or magazines. But that's what we're most concerned about. Aren't we? No, God demands our bodies because He wants models of mercy, models of faith, and models of love. God's not concerned with the outward appearance of you. He's concerned with the appearance that comes from the inside. He wants people to notice your godliness, not your beauty or lack of it. You tell me which one you're more concerned with this morning when you got up. You show me one that doesn't care what this does. They accept what it is and do the best they can with it. But what's in here? That everybody in here can change. Everybody in here can change. Because God will. For you. Again, it takes effort. God wants us to present ourselves to Him so he, we can represent Him in the world. Does that make sense? Represent Him. He has no physical lips except your lips. No eyes but your eyes. No hands but your hands. No ears but your ears. No feet but your feet. You're also going to have to feel some pain. Because making a living sacrifice is going to hurt. A living sacrifice is made sometimes at a high personal cost. For it's easy to say you'll make a sacrifice, but it's harder to do because it's going to cost you something. You have to give up something, and that's typically going to hurt. And you're going to have to go against the flow, by the way. And all of these things, remember, are exactly opposite, polar opposite, of what the world, controlled by Satan, says you should do. They're opposite. You're supposed to go against the flow here. A person who is a living sacrifice lives a counter-cultural lifestyle. That's the best way I can put it. Making a living sacrifice, people will think you've gone stark raving mad, crazy, cuckoo, even. Out of your mind. But it can be done, and it should be done. This is no kidding. 
when I was an executive vice president of a billion dollar printing corporation in Chicago, and I gave my notice to my company president. And she said, well, where are you going? Who headhunted you? What, what company are you going to? I said, well, I'm going into full-time Christian ministry. <laughs> and she looked at me, and she said, what are you really doing? I said, I'm going into full-time Christian ministry. Well, how big a church is it? Well, not very big. She said, well, you're making $100,000 here. What are you going to make over there? I said, seventeen five. And she looked at me and she said, what are you really doing? I said, I'm going into full-time Christian ministry. You know what she did? She said, you're serious. I said, I had a heart attack. And I looked at her and I had a smile on my face. I wasn't a bit concerned. And she could see it all over her. I should be concerned. She was concerned. And she reached across her desk. She pulled a Rolodex toward her. And she started flipping through it. And she pulled out a card. And she said, call this guy. He's good. You need a CAT scan. <laughs> I assured her I was just fine. And I am. I am. Always was. And here I am, nearly 30 years later. Still doing it. Has it always been easy? No. Do you guys get on my nerves? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Do I get on yours? I'm sure. But here we are. And I'm grateful that you trust me enough to give you the truth. That's why you come here. That's why you're here. God calls you for such a time as this to get the truth. And you know that here you can get it. But that's going to be going against the flow. And you're going to be cuckoo to people that don't do it. They think you're nuts. They might even get angry with you if they're your friends. The biblical word that we have for it is not cuckoo. It's holy. <laughs> I bet you've never looked at holy that way before. It's the opposite of cuckoo. That's what it is. Remember that one? How, how will we know that we're worshiping continually? Because that's what we have to do. Well, first, we're going to live holy lives. And holy means distinct, separate, not the same, out of the ordinary, unusual. Why? Because to this world, God is unusual. What He wants is unusual. And the day is coming when it's going to be not unusual, but it's going to be even more hostile than it is now. He's a holy God. And he expects his followers to be holy, to be different, to be like their heavenly father. Christians are to be distinct, separate, not the same, out of the ordinary and unusual, peculiar. Why? Because Christ was distinct, different, out of the ordinary. And he called his followers to be like him. And as our worship team comes, this is what I have to say to you. As a Christian, you are to be godly. And you can't make up and determine what that is. Godliness is being like the Father says it is, and that's Him. And He manifested that in the body of the Son on earth. And He implanted His Spirit in us 
so that we would always know when we've deviated from being holy like the Father. That's what it's for. A godly person is not an odd person, but we are a different person. And we should be. Our lifestyle is not only different from past lifestyles, but it's different from the lifestyles of the unbelievers around us. And it should be. For if you fit in with everybody that's not saved and doesn't see God as their Savior and doesn't live their lives for Him, then there's a problem in your neighborhood. You're to be that place that when the tough times come, even though they might not be your best friend, they know where to go. Because you exude what God is, you see. Thanks for listening to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. For more great biblically sound teaching, visit freelifecc.com.